0: Hello and welcome to Driverless. I'm your host, Zach Adams. Today's episode is part one of an interview series featuring one of our IP attorneys, Jay Campbell, and Professor Bart Costco from the University of Southern California. Let's jump straight into the interview and get rolling to today's episode of Driverless. Welcome to Driverless. I am Jay Campbell, one of our contributors. We've had several questions from our listeners about artificial intelligence and neural networks. Those questions range from what is a neural network to why they are so popular now. So I thought I'd go to one of the experts in AI, someone I've known for about 20 years, Dr. Bart Costco. Bart is a professor of electrical engineering and law at the University of Southern California. He's an award-winning pioneer and author in the fields of artificial intelligence, neural networks, and fuzzy logic. He holds degrees in philosophy, economics, mathematics, electrical engineering, and law. Dr. Crosco has several patents on artificial intelligence and has over 150 scientific publications. He's also published several textbooks and is the international best-selling author of Fuzzy Thinking, Heaven in a Chip, Noise, and Others. Welcome, Bart. Good to see you, Jay.
1: Good to hear from you.
0: It's good to hear from you again. So, as I started... uh, We've had lots of questions from our readers and our listeners. What is artificial intelligence? Can you perhaps, Bart, give us an explanation from somebody who knows it? I'm going to give you a two-word definition,
1: and it may surprise many of your listeners. But this is from someone, as you said, who's been at this for many years. For example, in 1987, I helped organize the first conference on neural networks, and I teach courses on this subject related subjects of statistics the two word definition is applied statistics again ai the first order is applied statistics it's not magic it's often very old algorithms run on ever faster computers and sometimes you get what appear to be breakthroughs sometimes you really may have a breakthrough but you can't forget the underlying mathematical structure here there's a way of going from collected data, maybe very quickly, to a form of pattern recognition or another form of control like that, whether it's speech recognition, whether it's the analysis and big data done on the, lately, the nightly news or, for example, something like Google News, which is a clustering algorithm, or systems used by Netflix and Amazon and Airbnb. These are all systems that are using statistical algorithms, given different names by different groups, often very colorful names by computer scientists like machine learning and deep learning. But fundamentally, they are statistical algorithms and they're using the oldest game in the town, normally something called the law of large numbers.
0: What we've heard a lot of recently, especially with autonomous vehicles, are neural networks as a form of artificial intelligence and you know i've often heard that a neural network is something that's modeled after the human brain is that true
1: at the element wise level it's true it's not true at the system level at the element level in a brain you have about a hundred billion neurons and they do function in a digital like way on or off and in the same way in the modern neural network you have a lot of like on off switches they're called soft switches And indeed, they're made to look like the letter S or sigmoid. There have been some modifications to that. So at that level, Jay, of just flipping on and off switches, looks like a brain. And that's been around since the 1940s in some form or other. The difference, though, is putting those together in a kind of black box way to model a given system. In particular, to use it for systems of pattern recognition. Like what? Like to recognize your face in an image or... If we've got 100 faces on the terrorist watch list and we're running through the facial recognition algorithm software at an airport, say, we're matching against those. But inside that, although there's a lot of units that are on-off, fundamentally, we're still using a statistical technique that uses on-off switches. But why is it not like a brain? Because the brain operates in an unsupervised capacity, number one. In other words, there's no god-like or government-like or teacher-like structure in general in the brain. There may be some little local pieces. Number two, the brain is massively interconnected. Again, you've got about 100 billion neurons, at least you did when you started out. And each one of those, on average, is connected to about 10,000 other neurons. And that means we have feedback, things swirling around, and indeed in a massive way, with few exceptions. In almost all cases of the current applications, this is starting to change. There's no feedback at all. It's feed forward. You put something in the left, and it goes to the right. And finally, in the brain, unlike in most computer algorithms, there is no clock. It's asynchronous. So think about that. You've got 100 billion on-off switches, each one talking on average to 10,000 other on-off switches. And there's no clock cycle. And somehow out of that, this big, swirling, what we call dynamical system, falls into equilibria that we call thought or memory or recall and we're only very crudely approximating that with neural networks now there are and have been mathematical models of the brain that are much closer than the ones that are leading to what you've talked about so far in smart cars or i mentioned speech recognition and maybe some days that will apply but to first order what's currently being applied is something that has essentially no feedback that has synchronization a clock cycle and has not this adaptive, fed-back structure of the human brain. But if you zoom in close enough, if you pick something inside the black box, it is like an on-off switch. So in that very crude sense, it looks brain-like.
0: Well, I, I understand that uh, neural networks are trained, you know, much like the brain, by showing them either images of things and telling them this is an image of a cat or an image of a dog. Right, uh, or showing it, you know, complex driving situations, and telling it what it should do at the end. So, how is it the neural network, you know, learns to predict what it should do in the in the future? Well, let's take it a step at a time.
1: You're right, but let's take the simplest case where we have a neural network with a final output, one neuron or one on-off switch, and it comes on if it sees your face in the image; otherwise, it's off. And so we train it with lots of examples of images that include your face, that don't include your face, cases where your face is covered with noise or something like that. And in the supervised case, if we know your face is in the image, while we're training it, we're saying the output signal should be one. And, and then if it's not, and it often won't be in training, we have an error, the difference between this case one and say zero. And when there's a clever way of feeding that back to update the wires or links between the neurons so at that level it kind of looks like uh, very much looks like I guess how we learn patterns from samples but again I want to make clear here what we're saying to every little unit inside the neural network Jay is that depending on whether it was a one or zero at the output we're gonna modify your link or your weight is that really how the human brain works so maybe for some sub networks but the, the trouble with this analogy of supervised learning, which has been very effective in engineering applications, and it's going to be, continue to be effective based upon the increasing powers of computers. But in terms of representing the brain, it would be like saying that the next move you're going to make in your life, or how you're going to move your arm, or the, what you're going to do tomorrow, depends upon the effect that you have on the gross nat- national product, or the effect that you have on the yield on the 10-year note. And, and so as the economy gets bigger, that becomes increasingly absurd because the effect any one unit or you and I have on the international bond market is, is minuscule, and so too inside models neural networks. In the simple models we have today with relatively small numbers of neurons, they're increasing, the individual neurons can still make a difference. But that's where the analogy, I think, starts to break down. What's happening inside the brain, whether it's the brain of a fly, and certainly of a human being is much more complicated. It's fed back, it's asynchronous, and it doesn't depend upon how it affects some global output performance measure.
0: Well, you you mentioned uh, a smaller number of neurons and comparisons between that and the brain. Uh, We've heard a lot of deep learning. Uh, Is deep learning just expanding the levels and expanding the number of neurons so that it can essentially uh, think better, more complex? Okay,
1: you're on to it. Deep learning, first off, is a marketing term, I think most people admit. All right. And what it technically means is that you have two or more layers in a neural network. And there are some theoretical reasons to believe that if you increase the number of neurons, let's say you go from 100 to 1,000 to a 1 million, that the network can learn more patterns. And that looks like it's the case. But by the way, Jake, uh, we could take all million neurons and put them in one big layer or we could separate them up into 10 layers of 100,000 each, or dot, dot, dot. And there's no real theory out there that suggests one's more preferable to the other. There's a lot of experimental results. So the deepness is a rough way of referring to the complexity, the, the number of elements inside the neural network. They tend to get better the more units you have. Now Just be aware of that kind of thing. So it is true they're more powerful. By the way, there is a mathematical result or family of them, that undergirds this, and it comes right out of that 1987 conference I mentioned by the late great econometrician, Professor Halbert White at UCSD, and a concurrent independent result from Professor George Cybinko. They proved an interesting fact, Jay, that these simple neural networks that only approximately resemble the brain, if in theory, if you had enough neurons, and that is a big if, but if you had enough neurons, they could approximate any curve that wiggles that's continuous and do so in what's known as a, a uniformly continuous manner so a, a uniform function approximation a lot of people seem to think that the initial successes in the 1980s using the identical algorithms pretty much we're using today and recognizing faces in images or different sounds and different speech signals that that somehow meant that theory was validated, we're not quite sure, there's not a direct link between the algorithms that teach the current deep networks and this underlying theory, but there is a piece of theory that says, and it's an interesting piece of theory, that if you had enough neurons, we don't know how big it'd be some big number, you could take most of the equations in a physics text, for example, and replace them with great big neural black boxes. Now, we don't have a way of doing that, but in principle, in principle you could. And there are other techniques that can do something similarly if we talk about called fuzzy logic.
0: I, I don't want to get into fuzzy logic just yet. Sure. Um, I just want to ask a couple questions more about the neural net. Uh, you yeah. mentioned layers. Now, as yes. I understand the general construction of most neural nets, uh, we have an input layer, and that's you know, a certain number of nodes. And then we have, for example, a, a middle layer, and then we have Uh, your final output layer and each of those nodes on the input layer is connected generally to each of the nodes on the middle layer in this massively parallel connection and then their decisions made and you talked about the on off right each of those nodes or uh, essentially neurons will make that decision and then it will pass from what I understand all those decisions back on to every neuron in the next layer, correct? Right, let's take this case. Let's
1: try to build a database with 10 faces. Let's say your face is the third face, mine may be the fifth. Now that you would set that up with a neural network whose output layer has 10 output neurons. You can think of them as 10 light bulbs. And when your face is present at the input layer, which is simply a neuron standing in coding for a pixel in an image, for example, so when your face is present, Jay, we'd want the third light bulb to come on and all the other ones to come off. When my face is present, we'd want the fifth light bulb to come on. And in the simplest case, there would be just one middle layer of these on-off switches. And you can view the output layers on-off switches. Now technically, it's a little softer than that and they all add up to 100%, so it gives you a kind of probability distribution over that. But you're right that once we take, take your image, and we put that at the input it would stimulate it would be passed feed forward paths going directly to that hidden layer hitting all or almost all the neurons in the hidden layer and then they would do their thing turning on or off based upon their status and maybe some other information and they would feed into this final output layer of ten neurons and when we're training it if we put in your image we want the third light bulb to come on but the fourth light bulb comes on again that's an error and there's a way of using that error information in a recursive way to update the links from that output to the hidden layer. And if it, So that's the first point. And if it works for one hidden layer, there's no reason why you couldn't have multiple layers of these on-off switches in there. And with arrows going from one to the other. All going, though, starting at the input, flowing forward to the output. There's no feedback at this point. And what's really tricky about this is the following that when you put in the picture of your image, we know what we know, We know. know what the output should look like. It should be the third light bulb on and the other nine should be off. But we have no idea what the on-off patterns should look like in the hidden neurons in between. And one of the great breakthroughs came from Dr. Paul Werbos and his PhD thesis at Harvard University, I think in 1974, where he worked out the way of recursively going back, figuring out the output layer and then using that information to update the penultimate, the almost output layer of hidden units, treating it as if it were the output layer, and then going back. In the 1980s, some psychologists gave that algorithm a very cute name called backpropagation, which we still use, because you're propagating back the errors. And in principle, and here's the point, you could have any number of hidden layers. And so the idea was that the more you had, the, the quote, deeper you have it, the, the better the recognition, the more patterns it could recognize. That seems to be true, Subject to some other problems that take place, which are inherent in the
0: algorithm itself So maybe this is a good time since you've mentioned the word algorithm several times to explain the difference between a neural net and a rules-based system Because you know a lot of us I know think of a rules-based system as an algorithmic system Um, But in reality both neural networks and rules-based systems are based on algorithms, which at least Train um, or monitor the neural network. So, so, so what is the best way we can understand the difference between a neural net and a rules-based system?
1: Well, first, let's talk about an algorithm. An algorithm okay. is anything that t- that turns an input into an output. The input could be a list of ingredients to bake a loaf of bread, and the output is the actual piece of bread. But in a mathematical sense, if you take the number x, the function x squared, and I hand you a minus two, that squares out to be four. Likewise, so does the number two. That's a simple algorithm. In other words, a function is doing that. It's a step-by-step mm-hmm. procedure of converting inputs to outputs, point number one. Point number two is if you stand back and look at a system, which is what? Is anything that turns an input into an output. So maybe like in a smart car, the input is the pattern in front of you of the, of the traffic, and it's mapped into the output of control signals, steering column, and elsewhere or it could be in a game of chess. The input is the current state of the chessboard, and the output is your next move on the board. That's sort of those are all systems. And the classical way of estimating those systems is to guess at equations like what? Like equals MC squared, for example, or the underlying law of the theory of gravity from Isaac Newton. Those are algorithms. We don't call them that. We may dignify them with terms like uh, law of nature. But first off, they're guesses, they're brain-based guesses, and they're ways of taking inputs and converting them to outputs, they're algorithms. Now, the question then arises, can we do the same thing without guessing at equations, or at least have some generalized equations that fit many different scenarios? And one early attempt to do this is with a bunch of if-then rules, like in a tree, in particular like a diagnostic tree. What's wrong with your car? Well, the car won't start. Yes or no, you answer some other questions and and the, the mechanic can walk down that tree to the end. That was the earlier approach of artificial intelligence coming out of the 1950s and 60s. And around the same time, maybe in the early 60s, the first real neural networks got underway. And they were called perceptrons by a fellow named Frank Rosenblatt. We now have the Rosenblatt Award in honor of him and these that, were
0: i'm sorry that was 1960s frank rosenblatt so that's the late 80 uh, what 60 years ago it's, absolutely right wow. there were a,
1: there were two main algorithms networks that came out in the late 50s or something that we today call lms or least mean square algorithm now we're doing this conversation remotely And I can assure you, at different steps in the satellite link and elsewhere, we're using the LMS algorithm, which is a kind of one-neuron neural network. Maybe it's the most used engineering algorithm out there by Professor Bernard Woodrow from Stanford. He was at MIT at the time. And also in the early 60s, late 50s, that time frame, really more in the early 60s, Frank Rosenblatt popularized the perceptron, which is what we today call neural network in terms of its layout. And it had hidden layers, and there was a lot of hype about it and so forth, but the point I'm getting at was the idea that you could get away from guessing at equations or even setting up a tree-like structure of rules and simply letting the neural network, the kind of black box with these on-off switches wire itself to figure out how you recognize to face in an image. And you can go back and look at some of the media in the early to mid 60s and the excitement over artificial brains and, and what you see were physical devices on-off switches, circuits uh, based on analog technology at the time and a lot of wires that look like the old telephone talk board exchanges. And people would wire those up for perceptron. That's essentially what we're doing today. It's just done automatically and it's done in software. We, We don't build the hardware in general directly to implement the neural network. We do it indirectly by just implementing the software. Why? Because the algorithms consist of just multiplication. Addition division and subtraction. It really comes down to that. So rather than guessing at a bunch of simple rules Which was the earlier AI approach Captured in things like LISP. LISP was an old AI language. It stands for list Processing and then later one of them called prologue based on symbolic logic But in general that older approach of AI was to work with text on the other hand this approach of neural networks and related technologies but in particular the perceptron, the LMS algorithm work with numbers. You see the difference? So the earlier AI approach was straight up symbol processing like you would have if you remember uh, the syllogisms in law school or in geometry, all men are mortal, Socrates is the man, therefore Socrates is mortal. You can implement that completely in a symbolic language and you can do a lot with that. It leads, for example, to modern symbolic mathematical integration systems like Mathematica or Maple. But the bigger advance was this parallel effort requiring numbers and requiring a lot of computing power, and it came and it went. And just to give you a little historical perspective, the late great Professor Marvin Minsky, a real pioneer in artificial intelligence, and I'd recommend to look at his paper in 1961, An Overview of Artificial Intelligence. It reads a lot like it was written today in terms of the promises and the challenges. But Minsky published, co-authored a book, called perceptrons in the late 60s that showed that simple neural networks that really didn't have these hidden layers were limited in terms of the kinds of problems they could solve, something in topology called connectedness. And that was kind of good enough for practical reasons and a lot of research moved on from neural networks until the era I was involved with in the early and mid 80s to resurrect these older algorithms we had much more powerful computers. And by the way, Jay, the difference in computing power between the 80s and the 60s is a lot less than between today and the 1980s, which I think also accounts for what we're seeing. So fundamentally, we're trying to model systems that map inputs to outputs, and that's quite general. We can view a human being as a kind of system, the brain is a system, or any other control problem. And instead of asking a programmer to code up a bunch of binary rules to recognize a face, no one knows how to define a face, we can let the neural network, in effect, do that for us.
0: This is fascinating. <laughs> you know, I'm starting to, I, I did a lot of this work years and years ago, and to hear all these terms come back, and to hear about Dr. Minsky, <laughs> who I met many, yeah. many years ago. He just died that, three it's, years it's, ago. Yeah. Oh, really? Yes, he did. Uh, he was a fascinating, fascinating he man. He was uh, one of the last
1: PhD students, of, the, of one of the greatest minds of the 20th century.
0: And I want to point out a
1: true neural pioneer, the, the late, great John von Neumann the designer of everything oh, right. from, from bombs to game theory to modern weather and prediction systems and, of course, the modern programmable computer.
0: And that concludes part one of our interview series featuring Jay Campbell and Professor Bart Costco. As always, you can contact us on Twitter at at underscore driverless or by email at driverless at